This is an ABC podcast. Jonathan, last ball of the semi-final. Slogs wave out into the deep. Oh, and wow. it's just taken the heat win. She's gone. There it is. They were nervy to start with Australia, but they've settled very, very quickly. Yeah! You're listening to Ladies Who Legs Spin. Surprise, everyone. Uh, You know that sometimes we like to bring you very special bonus episodes and we are lucky to be bringing you a very special bonus episode today. As always, I can never do a bonus episode on my own. So I'm Mary Kay and I have Brittany Carter sitting, well, not alongside me, but opposite me so I can (laughs) see her smiling face. How are you, Britt? I'm good, Mary. I'm really excited about what's to come in this podcast we've got coming up. It's not something we've sort of tackled before or spoken about. So I'm glad we've got a lot of great people in the room that can sort of give us more insight on this topic. Now let's take a step back. In August of this year, Cricket Australia launched its trans and gender diverse inclusion policy to make sure that transgender and gender diverse people can play cricket at the highest level in Australia. Now, there's that policy, but the policy also includes guidelines for community cricket to support players to compete in line with their gender identity, whether or not that aligns with the sex that they are assigned at birth. So, Britt, this was massive news in cricketing circles and I think a really positive step forward for the sport that we love so much. We thought we'd get some experts in tonight to help us discuss this policy and what it means for cricket going forward. Yeah, and as I said before, I'm really looking forward to hearing what they have to say because it's something that we know very little about and I'm sure that if we know very little about it, then there's lots of people that need to learn more about what's going on. So let's introduce our friends. All right, I'll go first. Sitting next to me is Dr. Ryan Storr, who is a lecturer in sport development at Western Sydney University, a researcher of diversity in sport and co-founder of Proud to Play, which is a charity established to encourage and support the LGBTIQ community to participate in sport. He's a big friend of the show. We've been wanting to have him in for ages. Ryan, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to coming on this podcast for a very long time. Well, you are certainly an expert in this space, so uh, you are very welcome here and thank you for joining us. Our next person that's sitting directly in front of me is Bernice Harpley, who was a founding member of the university's cricket club in Sydney. Bernice, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. And one of the reasons we've got you here with us is that you've got Erica James with you, who was part of the announcement of this policy and has been playing with you at universities for some time. So we're really lucky to have you, Erica, here too today. Thank you very much. All right. Where should we begin, Mary? Maybe we should give a little bit of background on the policy so people sort of understand where we're coming from and what this policy was brought in to achieve. So the elite cricket policy is aligned to the ICC's eligibility on the basis of gender recognition and gives transgender and gender diverse cricketers guidance on how they can compete at the highest levels of sport consistent with their gender identity. So the way the policy works is that a cricketer has to nominate their gender identity to Cricket Australia's head of integrity and demonstrate that their elected gender is consistent with their everyday life. Transgender or gender diverse people looking to compete in the female elite category have to demonstrate a concentration of testosterone in serum less than 10 nanomoles per litre continuously for 12 months or more. Ryan, the testosterone thing has been something that has been spoken about a lot in spaces like this. Can you tell us about why and where the 10 nanomoles has come from and whether you think that that's an appropriate measurement? So the testosterone debate, and I think it is becoming very much a debate 
Um, recently, for example, um, there's a researcher in the U- US, Katrina Kakasis, um, who's kind of questions the role of testosterone and what we know about it and things like that, because um, it's not the only indicator of sex. There are other um, factors that come into it. Um, but from from what I know about it, um, the actual measurement was plucked out of the air because there's a distinct lack of research in this area because there aren't really that many trans elite athletes in the grand scheme of things to be able to do any kind of systematic research and um, take measurements and things like that. It's just not possible. So I think originally when the IOC kind of developed it, I think the first policy was in 2003, it was actually kind of just plucked out of the air. So we don't have any kind of like um, large scale research that would back up the reason for that percentage and there's discussions recently to lower it so the IAAF who have been kind of leading the charge around um, intersex inclusion and uh, making athletes with intersex variations um, change their bodies and cast a semenya and things like that and there's been more cases there was a case a couple of weeks ago around an athlete um, who had to have um, medical treatment against her will basically if she wanted to compete um, so the the whole testosterone thing, I think, in the next couple of years will be debated a lot more. And as we kind of get a little bit more research around it, um, I think it will help going forwards. Well, the fact that a, an athlete has been asked to actually change their body against their will doesn't sound very inclusive. And that's what this is all supposed to be about, isn't it, Erica? It sure is. <laughs> so what would you have to say about the 10 nanomoles at the moment? Where, where do you feel like that fits? Um, I think... 10 nanomoles is reasonable. I think it could probably be lower. I've been on hormones for uh, three and a half years and my levels are hovering around zero and have done since about nine months into my treatment. So, you know, I haven't really got any. I, I wouldn't be concerned about being tested or anything. How much of an effect that's had on me, on my physiology, is that's really what's up for debate at the moment um, and in so many different circles. Erica, it's interesting that you bring up the physiology because so often when we're talking about transgender women competing in sport, the focus is very much on an advantage that you may may be seen to have in the women's cricket space or the women's sports space. But I don't think people quite understand that for people that undergo gender affirmation surgery, there are also... um, changes to your body that can happen that also may pose sort of a disadvantage when you're competing against women in sport. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very true. What hormones do to the human body is quite well researched, but we don't know everything. Different hormones have different effects on different people. Um, so the things that have happened to me aren't necessarily the same things will ha- that will happen to someone else. You don't automatically have an advantage. And, and I think it's wrong that we have this assumption that if you're male, you're automatically better anyway. I agree with that. And I think it's almost a clip against women's sport, just this automatic assumption that, for example, a man could make the decision to socially transition to become a woman, that she could automatically walk in and start competing against the Australian women's cricket team. It just doesn't quite work like that. And we know, you know, around women's cricket, especially and women's sport in general, the money isn't there that's there for the male athletes. So it's it's a huge undertaking to undertake just to want to play women's sport. Mm -hmm. I don't think that anyone would ever be stupid enough to transition just for that reason. It would change their life in so many negative ways. Being trans isn't that much fun. Um, So, yeah, I mean, look, if someone wanted to 
play elite sport that desperately and they thought they were going to make it, I would highly advise that they didn't try. But if they did try, yeah, it's probably not going to work out the way they think anyway. Erica, you make the point of being trans not being very fun. And Ryan, I know that we had a discussion before we came here today about some of the things people face when they decide to transition. Yeah, like going on the back of that, um, I think there's definitely sexist undertones to everything kind of around this debate because we don't talk about men's bodies in the same way. We don't interrogate men's bodies. Um, Same with intersex men or um, trans men, they can dope up to a certain level. Um, And again, with this kind of assumption that women's bodies are different and women's sport, etc. So I think definitely the regulation of women's bodies, regardless... um, it's definitely problematic. But in terms of um, the transition, there keeps all these discussions go around that men are just going to wake up one morning and want to be trans. And kind of as Eric alluded to that, it just doesn't work like that. Um, through the organisation that I co-founded, um, we work with a lot of young trans and gender diverse young people. So they... Um, for example, uh, through the Royal Children's Hospital, the Gender Dysphoria Clinic... Um, Doctors, clinicians, psychologists, Um, a young person, for example, has to go through kind of a lengthy spell in order to to potentially take hormones. So they might have to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, then they might have to see a psychologist or psychiatrist. They might have to go on a waiting list for that. They might have to go on a waiting list for hormones. It's the same for adults. Like the journey, whether you socially affirm your gender identity and then you might take appropriate steps to do that medically. It's a very long journey and the impact it has on the body, like in terms of young people, we try and get them to engage in sport and exercise because there's a lot of physiological changes to their body. They might have some mental health implications because of discrimination in society. So we're trying to get them to kind of play sport to help. But again, there's this like undertones to it that people are cheating and things like that. And it's just, I, don't, I actually don't know where it comes from. <laughs> I'd love to get back to the policy for a little while. Erica, you were instrumental in the development of this policy. How I'm... Oh, I'm going to say instrumental. I would say I I played a a part. How important was it for a transgender woman to take part in the development of this policy? Our friends at the Outer Sanctum always talk about nothing about us without us, and that sort of resonated with me when I was thinking about this policy. Yeah. I I think first and foremost, it shows that Cricket Australia weren't just paying lip service to the idea of inclusivity. They they wanted to get real answers from, you know, a real person who had lived this experience, which is playing women's cricket as a transgender woman. And I think that actually sends a really strong message that they're very serious about it. Not only that, but there are there are things that I picked up that a cisgender person just isn't gonna notice in the wording and, and things like that that may have actually made the policy less effective. Erica, how would you compare how Cricket Australia has approached this policy and the way that they involved you and and went about launching it and the way the AFL have dealt with the whole situation following Hannah Mouncey declaring her desire to play AFLW? I think what Cricket Australia has done is they've preempted, you know, any problems that could come up. They've taken a front foot approach and said look, we need to make sure that, you know, people can play this sport that is apparently for all Australians. Let's make sure it is for all Australians. And I think that they did it in a very careful, considered way. They, there were scientists, there were researchers, there were people with lived experience. 
there were I wasn't the only transgender uh, female or gender diverse female in the group. Um, you know, it, they did a lot of research and a lot of work into making sure that it could be as right as it could be, so that it would try and keep that balance between inclusivity and fairness, which I think is the really difficult part of it. Erica, it was great to hear from you about um, just the amount of work that Cricket Australia put into this policy. And Ryan, we've heard this policy being called best practice. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. So I've done a few research projects for Cricket Australia um, and Cricket Victoria, and they have over the years invested in the area of LGBT inclusion in terms of building evidence base. And I know that they have um, really gone out of their way to kind of hear from all the different perspectives. But I think one of the things that's worked really well in terms of an industry, so this was kind of first started with um, Sport Australia and the Australian Human Rights Commission partnered um, for a, a, a generic general policy on trans and gender diverse inclusion in sport. So that was launched earlier this year. Um, and basically they spent the best part of a year doing consultation. They had a lot, like over 40 consultations with key people in the area, um, trans and gender diverse people and people with intersex variations. And then that was kind of a general one and very much around kind of grassroots, um, like non-elite. And then it was up to sports to actually kind of develop their own individual ones because their sports are quite different. So with AFL, with a contact sport, that is quite different from cricket, which doesn't have this that, that same physicality. So on the basis of one of the main things which um, the AFL used to exclude Hannah Mouncey from it, because I originally helped with the Victorian one around um, the actual policy, and it was that small little clause around strength, stamina and speed. Um, and if that basically can be interpreted that someone might have an advantage because of that. So that's what they used um, for that. So that's kind of a very specific thing. So for something like cricket or netball, AFL, rugby, they're all quite different. So cricket basically, off the back of the national policy um, from Sport Australian Human Rights Commission, developed it, consulted people who it affected, spoke to teammates um, and um, cisgendered players, etc got it all together and then really got off the back foot with it. Back foot, is that the right saying? Well, I mean, Erica said front foot before and so you've gone on the back foot now. So I feel like we're throwing in <laughs> yeah. some cricket analogies now, which I really, really like. Um, Ryan, another yeah. thing that I found fascinating, when this policy was introduced, there was a lot of media around it. And when we're talking about, you know, the transgender community, there can, there can often be a lot of negativity. I wonder how many of these people, though, are actually impacted by this policy or are actually in it because we saw cricketers like Megan Shoot come out in support of it. Alex Blackwell is obviously being a driving force behind this policy. Yeah. So if we, we're seeing the female cricketers very supportive of diversity inclusion. So it's fascinating to me that we see such outcry around this topic. Yeah, like they were kind of talking about that, saying that the players are going to be outraged. And I know there's a lot of groups in the UK, for example, I think it's Fair Play Women or something like that. Um, kind of a bunch of trans-exclusionary radical feminist turfs is the term, if you ever see it on Twitter. <laughs> I get attacked by them a lot. <laughs> um, and basically, there's often these debates, especially from the UK, they're kind of being spearheaded by the UK, that trans women in particular are taking the place of women and hard-earned positions that should be given to girls and cisgendered women again there's 
no evidence of really this. And Alex Blackwell and other players have kind of said that it's not affecting us. Like, I'm not playing cricket because a trans person has been included. Um, so it's got the support of of people. Um, and it's, it's really important as well because it does have repercussions at the grassroots level. So I think one of the real key things around this is um, the new CEO actually came out in support of this and wrote an opinion piece in The Australian. Like, The Australian is kind of has produced a lot of anti-trans articles. So to publish it in that space and really kind of support it and say, this is this is us and they have a tagline of we're a sport for all and this is a clear example where they're actually kind of enacting that policy and making efforts to actually include trans people and then if there are elite trans players who want to play they have the option again there's these assumptions that there's going to be team loads of trans people playing elite women's cricket like (laughs) from my knowledge there aren't too many because again at the grassroots level they're not being given the chance and they're being discriminated against so we need to really work on trying to provide these welcoming environments for everyone. Erica, I think that's a key thing, like providing an environment where trans people can feel comfortable playing sport. And I know for you on your journey, cricket's played a really important part of that and it took you many, many years to come back to the game. Um, yeah, I, I had no desire to play cricket when I was expected to play in a team of people that I felt no affinity with and had just a completely different outlook on life from. So, you know, when I transitioned and when I had this amazing welcome from from my club, the impact that it had on my mental health, I I can't explain it. I think my wife could probably explain it best because she's the one that saw how much it changed me. You know, I've now got something to look forward to every time I wake up because there's either cricket training or there's going to be a game or I'm just excited about the coming summer. And I think having something to look forward to is is something that I need mentally, you know, to, to really get me out of bed and excited about life. Erica and Bernice, you can probably answer this one together, but having played grade cricket, probably not at your level, Erica, but um, having played grade cricket in Sydney against the university's team, I've found that they can be quite inclusive across the park. You know, there's people that are just starting their cricket journey they might not have ever played before. There's also a lot of people that um, are gay in in the university's um, team that I've played against, certainly. But it seems like that club is really inclusive. And I'm just wondering if you know why they're like that. Because they're awesome, right? (laughs) (laughs) I... What I think it is, is that uh, there's just this overarching culture in the club. And I think that that was started by the founders, like which Bernice. is Bernice, Bernice, who's sitting right next to me. Yeah, Very quiet. Bernice. And, but the, has, and uh, Alex and Kate Blackwell. Yeah. Um, you know, I think from them creating the club, like it's always been the way that they accept everyone. They see diversity as a strength, not as a as an impediment to to the enjoyment of the game. And I think that's what sets unis apart a little bit. I was going to say it is great because when we first started, it was pretty much just all students. And just to see the club grow and we started getting younger players in and now, you know, we're just getting all sorts of different people in. And it's just amazing. Like, it is an amazing club to be part of. Mm. And now you've won a grand final recently at North Sydney Oval. What was that like? It was very exciting. It was a very close game. We were playing against Northern Districts, um, but playing at North Sydney Oval was quite an amazing experience um it's the you know it's the most professional ground i've ever played on there was a crowd there and (laughs) you know the fact that we won was it was icing on the cake but already the cake was already awesome (laughs) that's awesome to hear um ryan too i heard you talk about 
how some of the anti-discussion around this has been spearheaded from the UK. Have you found a lot of that to be coming from the Australian public or have we taken a different approach? Oh, there's definitely, um, there was an article today actually that was published in The Guardian that basically highlighted, and this was from the UN Commissioner for Sexuality and Gender Identity, saying that the betrayal of trans people in the Australian media has been absolutely horrendous and it's violated their human rights. So I know News Corp in particular have produced a lot of anti-trans rhetoric um, around this, and obviously that has an impact and it filters into sport. So I recently wrote an article for the conversation around often these debates are nothing to do with sport. It's basically sport being used as a platform to try and incite hatred towards trans people. Um, so when you kind of pick away at it and things like that, it's not actually the issues of sport. It's it's these uh, the broader resistance to trans and gender diverse inclusion and things like that. So like often you might get people on Twitter and things like that, but they're not sports fans. They're not invested in sport. They don't pay to go and watch sports. It's kind of this idea of economic vandalism. So trying to kind of whip up hysteria and discriminate against the trans and gender diverse community. Um, but again, they're not involved in sport. My experiences as a researcher and doing this work, sport is and can be very welcoming. And cricket um, has been very welcoming Um to trans and gender diverse people there's lots of good stories um we've had a pride cricket program that's been operating in victoria for two or three years now we have community cricket clubs who want to reach out and help but unfortunately we don't really hear those stories that's why we need to try and get more out there <laughs> i was gonna say can you tell us some more of those stories ryan and some of the more positive experiences that you've had yeah so one of them which really stands out for me is that often we get asked if we think about lgbt inclusion more broadly why do gays need their own program or why 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 are you segregating yourself why can't you just mix in with everybody else now unfortunately especially for young people um a lot of research shows Sporting environments, on average, about 75 to 80% of LGBT people witness or experience homophobia or transphobia in sport. So we need these safe spaces. So when we first launched our Proud Cricket program, which was an initiative with Vic Health, we applied for some funding. It was basically to create inclusive cricket programs for everyone in the LGBT community or communities. Um, we had a young trans person who was 17 um, and he travelled an hour and a half to come to our cricket programme because he wanted to play cricket. He'd always wanted to play. He, I think he played at school when he was young, but he never had the opportunity, never perceived it was a safe space, but he saw this programme and he came. And he used to, he came for like the four weeks it ran, he brought his mum and his mum drove an hour and a half to wow. come and play cricket. <laughs> I think that's probably what I find the hardest about this debate, Ryan, is that I don't understand the medicine as well as you do and I don't understand, I don't have the same understanding that you do, but I know for Brit and I we certainly come at this from a perspective of inclusion and just how powerful sport can be in bringing people together and giving people a safe space to be themselves and to just enjoy themselves. Yeah, and look, cricket for me is really fascinating. So I never played it. I wasn't really interested in it and I come from Yorkshire, which is a big cricket <laughs> county. Um, and then, it, honestly, randomly, I ended up doing a PhD in cricket. How? <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> so I, my research was in diverse inclusion, and I was looking for a sport to do it in. And then, because cricket was so welcoming, they were kind of like, oh, we'll link you up. I did it with a cricket club. So I spent 12 months with a community cricket club and did ethnography and observations. And then all my research has been in cricket. One of the things I've noticed through cricket is everybody loves cricket. 
the volunteers, the club members, etc. They're like obsessed with it. Yeah, you can't be half-hearted with the sport. Well, you spend eight hours in the sun. I mean, yeah. you know, you're not going to do that, right? If you <laughs> totally some some volunteers I worked with did thirty hours a week volunteering at their cricket club. Okay, so one thing that I can't kind of understand is that if you love cricket that much, why wouldn't you want somebody else to share that passion of cricket, regardless of who they are? Uh, as Erica said, a trans or gender diverse person can get as much joy from watching the Big Bash. And I've been getting into the Women's Big Bash and I found that's a really, a really easy way for me to get into it and then like engage with it and understand what's going on. A um, couple of English players there for you to watch too. Yep, yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I, I just can't understand why you would why you would want to stop someone and join some, something that you benefit from and you, you love and enjoy. I think why wouldn't you want more people to enjoy that? Well, talking about safe places, Erica, obviously universities has made their club a very safe space for you, but what have you found other opposition in grade cricket to be like? Um, almost entirely positive and friendly and welcoming and accepting. It's It actually really surprised me I, when I was preparing for, you know, to actually start playing in, in the games when I found out that I could. I started preparing some ready retorts for the sledging because <laughs> I was expect I was expecting an onslaught honestly I was expecting you know to be called a cheat and you know be referred to as he regularly and there was just nothing I had all these ready retorts and they all went to waste have you found anyone has been scared at all to to face you bowling or or to play against you at all um not that I know of, Bernice. Any ideas? Anyone? I don't think so. No. It's, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Because from a personal point of view, um, obviously I need to learn more about this space because I don't know much about it. But the idea of facing someone that used to be a male, uh, you know, whether it's in the nets or with a bat out at the, at the ground actually potentially does scare me a little bit. And I've admitted before that, you know, I'm playing lower grades. So I think maybe when you come to the elite level, there might not be that bigger, the bigger difference because everyone's elite, right? But um, I guess my, the thing I want to learn from today too, is that is the 10 nanomoles, how we ensure everyone's safe and you know, how do we ensure that people feel comfortable with, with what's going on while including everyone else too? Well, Okay, so I'd like to address your your fear of mm -hmm. facing a male bowler. If we spent five minutes in the nets together with me bowling at you, it would allay your fears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Britt, I was going to actually mention you probably need to be more scared if you were bowling and she was hitting the ball. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, so you're more of, more of a batter then? I'm, I'm more of a batter. Okay, what about if I'm in the field and I'm trying to catch a ball that you've just whacked at me? I hit the ball hard, but I don't hit it as hard as Kelsey Miller or Bess Heath. Or yeah, there's, yeah. there are so many other players in our comp who hit the ball a hell of a lot harder than I can. Yeah, I, I can, I can back that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. <laughs> yeah. So at a at a um at a community level, the ten animal thing doesn't actually apply at the at the community level. Mm -hmm. But we there have always been in place these safeguards, which are the umpires. If they see that there is a dangerous situation, you know, appearing because of a, a major discrepancy in, in skill level or, you know, if strength is, is that relevant, you know, in the bowling, mm. um, they can stop that person from bowling. And, and we have grading, you know, like someone who is playing third grade is probably bowling not far off the level that you would expect a third grade bowler to be bowling at. Mm -hmm. There's certainly variation. Uh, I would be one of the 
slower, possibly more crap ones. But <laughs> um, but yeah, there's variation. But I, you know, I think that's the same in all the grades and and at the elite level as well. I also think that most clubs wouldn't let you know if they had a transgender player or you know a cisgender female who you know could bowl like Stella Campbell. Hmm. Um, I don't think they would let them play third grade. They would make sure they were in a grade where, you know, it's safe for everyone as well. You know, Stella Campbell wouldn't be allowed to bowl in a third grade game any more than Mitchell Stark would. Yeah, that's very true. And Ryan, you've actually spoken to us about how people that go through transition, the fact that they can even play elite sport at all is an amazing feat because of the change their bodies go through. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so obviously... um... There's a lot of variety within trans and gender diverse people and the journeys they go on. Some might socially transition, some might take other steps that feel right for them. I'll give you an example. If a um, a trans woman was to have their testes removed, they physically can't produce any testosterone. So, And you need testosterone for daily bodily functions. Um, so you might have to take um, or get a therapeutic exemption or to kind of bring those levels up because you need them just to generally to operate. So this notion, again, when people say about testosterone, well, if they don't have any, they can't make use of it. But then again, there's, that's where it's really difficult because let's just say, for example, there's certain disorders or there's certain medical conditions whereby you could have increased level of testosterone, but your body doesn't know how to use it. So your your body does not benefit from higher levels of testosterone. I can't remember the name of it. It's in a book chapter. Or maybe I should have read it. <laughs> Where's the book? But yeah, so it, it, it varies. Or for example, women with polycystic... Um, Ovaries? Yeah. There's so there's lots of discrepancies, and again, I think as Erica kind of alluded to, there's not one woman. Women come in all shapes and sizes, different weight. Uh, women are Liz Cambage, yeah. and women are also um, say Stella Campbell, Brittany Carter, Brittany Carter. <laughs> we are all different, and we are all born differently as well. So there are physical attributes that people have that no doubt give them an advantage in whatever sport they're participating in. But because that is something that has been given to them at birth, it's yeah. somehow seen in a very, very different way. Yeah. And look, uh, I think the, the differences between men and women's bodies, generally, I think there's the research shows about 10 to 15% difference, especially kind of the elite level in endurance and speed. But like I play in a tennis league and it's kind of done on ability, but I've played against women heaps of times and I've been beaten by many women and I will be continue to be beaten by women. So again, this assumption that women are always lesser than men, these assumptions just aren't quite correct. Um, and I think in years to come, especially like there's, there's arguments that say that if someone has gone through male puberty, they will always have an advantage, even though there are bodily changes. Whereas if a young person transitions earlier in life and they take puberty blockers, they haven't gone through puberty in a male body. So that argument won't stack up either in the years to come. So I think it's great that there's a lot more discussion about it that's happening. Mm. Um, we just need to try and direct that discussion to based on facts and always considering the welfare of trans and gender diverse people because they're often removed from the conversations and it's, again, this human rights violation. They're, they're real people with real stories who want to participate in sport. Ryan, what can other sports learn from cricket? Do you think there are other sports willing to take sort of the courageous step that cricket has taken? 
Yep. So one of the main things around any type of diversity inclusion work is um, institutional support and leadership. So if you don't have that leadership, you don't have that buying and you don't have that CEO and the people at the top supporting the work that you're doing and the policy, like it's great to have a policy, but if it's not enacted and it, nothing's done with it, there's no point in having it. So I think um, having that support, and I think another observation that I've had within cricket is people who work in cricket and the administration really value this work, they believe in it, and they really want to really enact and bring to life this mantra of a sport for all. And that's from the WACA all the way through to um, Queensland. Erica, taking it back to more of a community level, what can all of us do at our cricket clubs to make sure that they're inclusive and friendly places? It sounds like you've had a wonderful experience at universities. Is there any advice that probably you and Bernice would like to give to other clubs? You know, if someone identifies as a woman, just accept that they're a woman. They might have a slightly different anatomy, but, you know, they know. It's it's like handedness. You can't show that you're right-handed or left-handed. You just know. Yeah. And, and that's what it's like to be a trans woman is I just know that I'm female. It's not I think I am or I wish I was. I am. And I think if you can if you can find people who, like if people can bring themselves to just accept that as a fact, then I think it automatically makes it an inclusive environment. Bernice, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think what you said, just be open about it. And what Ryan mentioned earlier, if you just everyone just loves cricket, so who does? Why does it matter who you're playing with? If you're just enjoying the game, yeah, just be open, accepting, and just enjoy cricket. Be kind, right? Mm. Yeah, be kind to each other. Yeah, just yeah. just on something that that Ryan was saying before with the top down support. Um, It'd be nice if our Prime Minister could maybe get behind this a little bit as well. Well, I was going to ask you, Erica, because when this policy was announced, Scott Morrison came out and said the policy was heavy-handed and mystifying. I found that to be quite mystifying from him. One of my friends said it best was, I I find Scott Morrison heavy-handed and mystifying. (laughs) Um, Thanks, Karen. Um, (laughs) Erica, do you think that comes from a place of misinformation? Where do you think that comes from? Fear, misinformation, lack of understanding? I think it comes from a fear, which is based on a disbelief that trans people exist, that we're making it up, that it's, uh, you know, it's all in our heads. And, you know, it is all in our heads, just like being a cisgender woman is all in your head. So I think what it comes down to is that a lot of people don't believe that someone could be born in a body that is not the gender that they are. And therefore they look for some nefarious reason why someone would transition. And that's when they come to these, you know, they make these leaps to, oh, it's to get into women's spaces or to, you know, dominate a women's sport. And um, when really all it, all it really is, is that, we just want to live an authentic life and, you know, feel like we can be open about who we are. So we've learnt a lot already today on this podcast, but I guess, Ryan, I'm going to come to you now. How can we educate people in sporting clubs in case some negativity and backlash comes up? Yeah, so often because there's so much um, 
anti-trans rhetoric in the media, for example, and the Australian newspaper, etc. Some people might take those messages in and uh, that's just the way it is. So um, I've been working with Sport Australia um, around some um, resources and, and guidelines for community sport organisations who want to engage and be more inclusive to trans and gender diverse people. So that's going to be launched on their website in the next couple of weeks. And we've done some posters. Um, we've done a podcast. We've done um, like an education piece, which is for 15 minutes and basically it's just like an education to sports clubs around what they can do to be more inclusive for trans and gender diverse people um, because often as well what we forget is that trans and gender diverse people are currently playing sport people just might not be aware of it so it's really important to have those affirming spaces and to make sure that they're having an environment that is still um, a nice one to be in. Just to follow on from that Ryan you're doing some work with the Sydney Sixers at the moment too which is really exciting. Yes, so we have been working with the Sixes in capacity of research and Proud to Play, which is the organisation I co-founded. Um, and basically we are developing their um, LGBT portfolio. So they're um, really big on doing community work and engaging um, with diverse communities. So they identified the LGBT plus community as one particular um area of work they want to do so we designed and developed basically like a three-year program um so we've been doing some um common try clinics um with rainbow families so rainbow families is an advocacy organization um in new south wales for same-sex parents um or anybody within the rainbow community who might be a parent an uncle um so we've been doing some clinics with them. We did our first pride party last year and we've got another one coming up um, on Sunday at Dremoyne. And then we've got a men's pride game as well in January. Um, and we're developing and designing some programs to try and get more um, LGBT people to come and play cricket. So we're going to be targeting gay men, which is an interesting one because um, gay men are often invisible in cricket. And there was that whole thing last year around the player coming out, but then he didn't. James Faulkner. Yeah, which highlighted like, where are the gay men in cricket? So I'm going to try and round them up try and, and find go them. and play cricket. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I just wanted to flip this for a second. We've talked so much about this as a women's sports space, but do you think we'll ever see someone that's previously been female that's transitioned to male play elite sport? Yeah, look, it's, I think the Hannah Mouncey case in terms of playing handball was really, really unique um, because the other thing as well is if a trans player... Um, was to kind of come through the ranks, the cricket administration would be aware of them. They're not just going to come out of thin air and be a world-class cricketer. Mm. So I think um, people will kind of be aware of the talent. Um, but, yeah, it would be interesting to see. Yeah, maybe watch this space. And I think one nice way to wrap up would be, um, Bernice, you've obviously at universities made it a very safe and inclusive space for Erica to join the club. What advice would you give to other clubs out there and what things would you do to make people feel welcome to come to their club? <laughs> you got this, Bernice. <laughs> yeah, sure, I do. Um, just be really accepting. Like I said, everyone who's, you know, wanting to play cricket just always at cricket or in wealthy cricket just wants to enjoy and have fun so just yeah just be be welcoming and accepting and erica as someone that's been really lucky to find universities and the welcoming space that is what would you encourage other clubs to do for people that might be going through a similar experience to you and, and wanting to reach out and join a, a sporting club encourage them you just you've got to encourage them it, it's going to make a huge difference to their life it's probably going to have very little effect on um, your club, 
you know, it, maybe it'll be a positive one. You know, maybe they won't be very good at the sport. doesn't matter. You're, you're giving that person an opportunity to do something that, that most Australians take for granted, and that's playing sport. Thanks for that, Erica. And I want to thank all of our panel members for coming in today. I know Brittany and I have learned a lot. And I guess for me personally, um, this is a space that I'm really supportive of, but I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to have a conversation because I think there are a lot of people that are afraid to have these conversations for fear of getting things wrong or not getting it quite right. So I've really just appreciated all of you coming in here and just being so honest with us and giving us your time. So thank you. Thank you. No problem at all. Thank and, you. Yeah, Erica, continue on your cricket journey. Uh, we're so happy to have you as part of the sport and to see you loving it so much. Bernice, congrats on everything universities are doing because they are a real leader in this space and are just a kind, beautiful cricket club. And Ryan, just keep kicking goals and advocating for people and it, it's a real pleasure to watch. Thank you. I'll see you at the Nets, Britt. Ah, oh, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. I'll take up that challenge. I'll come. I've I've never played cricket, but I really want to try. Oh, that <laughs> yeah. would be brilliant. Oh, my yeah. God. We should totally have a net session. We should. Yeah, okay, Ryan, I'm with you because I've never really played before. I'm abysmal. Right, so, um, yeah, Ryan and I will play <laughs> against each other. Um, yeah. Okay, that sounds good. Let's do it. Awesome. <laughs> Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.